It was a busy weekend in Egypt. I don't know if you've been paying attention to COP27. It's the big annual UN climate change conference. It was in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is an Egyptian resort this year. And it looked pretty dire for most of it. it people, I mean, There just wasn't agreement on much. And then at the last minute, there was agreement on something pretty major. Um, developed nations have finally agreed on a promise to establish a fund to aid struggling nations, specifically island nations who are on the front lines of climate change, impacted by extreme weather caused by climate change. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called it a step in the right direction. This COP has taken an important step towards justice. I welcome the decision to establish a loss and damage fund and to operationalize it in the coming period. Clearly, this will not be enough, but it is a much needed political signal to rebuild broken trust. Some of that broken trust coming from those island nations, including places like Antigua and Barbuda. Leah Nicholson is the climate envoy there, and she says the fund is a big win for the developing world. We have to recognize and compare where we were at COP1 and where we are today. We have achieved progress. We need to achieve more progress, provide the resources, provide the finance. But the commitment, I think, of all the, of the parties is equal. And again, I convey my appreciation for the level of uh, flexibility uh, and willingness to engage. That was, in fact, COP27 President Sameh Shukri uh, yesterday speaking about the wrap-up of the conference. So what was achieved and what wasn't? Uh, There was very little in the way of new commitments from COP26 in Glasgow or even a furthering of some of those commitments. Joining me now is Catherine Harrison. She's a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for your time. It's my pleasure. So your overall assessment, I know expectations going in were varied. Uh, We knew this would be a more difficult COP than, for instance, the one in Glasgow. Uh, But what was your assessment of how it all worked out? I found it all pretty discouraging. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. the progress in establishing a loss and damages fund is a really important breakthrough. But there's still so much work to do to turn that into something meaningful. And the 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 failure to make progress in actually limiting the pace of warming beyond um, where we were in Glasgow is is really discouraging. Yeah, let's talk about the good news first, because the fund was something that for a long time the United States had, had been opposed to, worried about what kind of liability that, that might entail. Um, but Pakistan was a big mover on this one. I gather they had those devastating floods over the summer. We talked about them on the show. But both the European Union and the United States came around on this issue. And it seems like we don't know what it's going to cost, but it seems like a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Um, There's three types of global climate finance. Um, Financial support for mitigation, so especially for developing countries to... um, to reduce their emissions or, or grow, uh, have c- clean growth, relying on clean energy. There is funding for adaptation investments to um, reduce the impacts of um, global warming. And then, and there has been, you know, commitments and some money for mitigation and adaptation from wealthy countries to developing countries. But there has been a stalemate for three decades on providing a third type of funding, which was compensation for loss and damages, the harm from climate change that's already happening and um, cannot be avoided through mitigation measures, the kinds of things we've seen in Pakistan, the drought and famine in Somalia. And that's been um, a very hard-fought issue for a very long time, and it was a breakthrough to get agreement to establish a fund 
um, the EU first, and then the U.S. moved on that. Um, They agreed that the funds should go to the most vulnerable developing countries. Um, They'll be looking for sources of money, including continuing to pressure a middle-income country, China. Um, But really what they've agreed to do is establish a bank account, but it doesn't have any money in it yet, nor agreement. Who's going to pay? We don't even know. We don't even know where the bank is at this point, do we? They're going to have to figure that out in uh, Dubai next year, I gather, or try to at least begin. Tell me a bit about the China issue, because this comes up. China is seen as a developing country, at least in the eyes of definitions such as this one. But clearly, when it comes to emissions, uh, it is not. And uh, both the U.S. and the EU would like to see some pressure put on China. But China seems impervious to the pressure right now. Well, China is um, is the world's largest emitter. It contributes the largest share of global emissions. But in terms of emissions per person, it's at about the global average, um, well below half of what Canada's per capita emissions are. And historically, this has not contributed the same share. So I think China is resentful that um, simply by virtue of having more more people in the country, they would be expected to do more. They have tended to negotiate as a block with the developing countries, so-called G77 plus China, although there's more than 77 of them. Um, In this case, the agreement on having the loss and damage fund, not for all developing countries, but specifically for those developing countries that are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change was really um, a rift that it broke those vulnerable countries from the um, G77 plus China group. When we look at what wasn't achieved, um, there certainly wasn't any new big commitments, for instance, you know, a renewal of, of, of the Paris Agreement uh, to limit temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We didn't see any of that language. What, what's, what, what happened here, do you think? So the way the Paris Agreement was originally negotiated, it was intended to be iterative. So the initial pledges would only limit warming to, I think it was between 3 and 3.5 C. And then the idea is countries would come back every five years and they would up their ambition. And last year in Glasgow was the first of those so-called ratcheting years. And they did up you know, increase their ambition, but nowhere near enough. And so instead of waiting for another five years in Glasgow, it was agreed that at COP27 in Egypt, countries would go back and revisit and um, try to strengthen their ambition to to um, move their pledges to be more ambitious. And very few did. Uh, you know, almost 200 countries are party to the Paris Agreement and about 20 came forward with new pledges. So we're still on track um, of 2.4 to 2.6 C. Emissions are still going up, whereas to achieve the 1.5 C level, we would have to see between 45 and 50 percent global reduction by 2030. So we are not where we need to be, and very little progress was made in um, tightening that gap between the the ambition we need and where we are today. I know that India was pushing for language around, uh, I know there was language around coal in Glasgow. India was pushing for language around oil and gas. That didn't happen either. Canada was opposed. Yes, um, apparently, initially. Um, One of the remarkable things is that we know that over 80% of the emissions that cause global warming come from burning fossil fuels. That's just a fact. Um, And yet, 
the Paris Agreement doesn't mention fossil fuels or coal or oil or gas. The Glasgow Pact that came out of last year's COP made a breakthrough in calling for a phase down of unabated coal. This COP, India initially proposed strengthening that language and and calling for a phase down of all fossil fuels that was... um, that was opposed by many countries, many fossil fuel producing countries. There's some reports that Canada itself um, opposed that language. And eventually um, the EU moved, the U.S. moved by late Saturday night or the wee hours of Sunday. There were reports that Canada was on board. But um, the thing about international negotiations is there has, every country has to agree. Almost 200 countries have to agree to the text. And so there were over 80 countries that were in agreement on phase down or even phase out of all fossil fuels. But key countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia and reportedly even Egypt, the chair of the meeting, were not willing to include that language. How do you think it's affected the, the, the general climate movement and the policy movement around climate change now, because I feel like we've seen the conversation shift and a lot of people sort of jumping in on it that were uh, quieter before. I mean, it feels like we're hearing two very different stories and people are talking past each other. So uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, the International Energy Agency put out its annual report. It's called the World Energy Outlook. And um, what they do is they anticipate different scenarios. One of them is if there was no change in current policies. They were all locked in where they are now. Another one is if countries actually met their current level of pledges. Nowhere near ambitious enough, but the current pledges. And then another scenario is what if we were really on a path to 1.5C? And what they find is that even at current pledges, that would we would expect to see immediate reductions in consumption of coal, oil, and gas. Um, And the IEA argued that the war in Russia will hasten the move away from fossil fuels because reliance on foreign oil and gas on those imports is what has made um, European countries so vulnerable. So that's kind of one story we're hearing, that it's the end of the rush to gas. And at the same time, we're hearing, including in Canada, that this is this moment where the world needs our fossil fuels. And we're hearing that from other countries as well, and especially focused on LNG. And I think it's kind of a moment where producers who can make money from exports but aren't responsible for the emissions see an opportunity to get as much of their product to markets while they still can. But their collective actions are really undermining um, action on climate change. Because um, I know just from within the industry itself, there have been, you know, maybe we'll just stick to Canada at this point, but within the energy producing industry here, there's been an awful lot of talk. There's been an awful lot of commitments about net zero by 2050 and so on. Um, Are we seeing the sorts of commitments that that you think are effective? No way. Um, When, when, oil and gas companies talk about commitments to net zero, they're only talking about um, reaching net zero for the emissions associated with getting the stuff off out of the ground, not the actual combustion emissions when that product is used. And fossil fuels work by releasing a CO2 molecule. They work by causing climate change. And so, you know, continuing to produce and send these products elsewhere is, is not a path to net zero. 
Um, and so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of, of what that means. There is still an assumption that Canada will be competitive globally, that somehow our oil and gas will be the last drop or barrel that's consumed. But we produce relatively high cost, relatively carbon intensive and low quality oil, which is why um, the industry is calling so hard for taxpayers to fund their emissions reduction bill. Yeah, I mean, on the LNG front, it's an interesting one because we're getting, I feel like we're getting conflicting messages. So you have, you know, um, uh, a, a, a German government with a Green Party in it, for that matter, coming to Canada saying we could use more of your LNG because, you know, we're, we shouldn't have spent so many years uh, depending entirely on the Russians for this. Um, but So the, we're getting some conflicting messages. I'm just wondering, as, as a Canadian government, and we see lots of different ideas about this uh, from those who aren't in power right now, um, is there a risk here that we start, that we take a step backwards, do you think? Absolutely. The... Um... The, the tricky thing with LNG is that Western European countries that have relied on Russian gas, especially Italy and Germany, they need gas supplies in the short term. But the European Union is committed to moving off fossil fuels and, in fact, a 50, 55 percent reduction in emissions by 2030 below their 1990 levels. So they're hastening their transition. What that means is that they need supplies in the short term, but it really raises questions about the long-term viability of new LNG infrastructure that would need to operate for decades to pay back those investments. That's why that IEA report concluded that Canada was not going to be one of the winners in um, new investments in LNG, that there, if we are even under current pledges, it's not plausible that those investments will will pay back, even though they um, they may be needed in the short term, but we can't get them up and running fast enough. Yeah, these were decisions that would have been had to be made a long time ago. And and if anything, we're seeing um, major companies pulling out. Right, they're they're not they're not all that interested in in actually spending their own money to build this infrastructure. Um, and it would seem, I mean, it seems unfortunate that Canada. I mean, at the end of the day, Canada is an ethical country, right? So it wouldn't be bad if we could provide some of this stuff to countries that need it right now, instead of some other places. But uh, I guess at the end of the day, it's not really worth investing billions in the infrastructure that would be needed. Well, in fact, who would end up holding, you know, holding the bag when those um, investments become stranded assets is a is a serious question. But the other thing is, there's not a lot of evidence that global markets are willing to pay a premium for ethical countries, no. you know, a democracy premium. And, you know, I think the Canadian oil industry, provincial governments in oil producing provinces emphasize that a lot, that we're a democracy and women in Canada can drive. But, you know, the European Union was willing all these years to buy Russian gas. Saudi Arabia and OPEC states are still doing very well. So I think we would be unwise to count on global consumers just liking Canada and wanting to buy our product when, you know, especially on the oil side, we don't produce very high quality oil. Heavy oil is harder to refine. It um, takes more emissions to refine. And on the Canadian side, it's more costly to produce and has a lot of emissions per barrel. Catherine Harrison, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome.